Do you eat too much? Do you drink too much? Do you work around the clock? Can't satisfy that itch, just one more bump and then I'll stop. You can get help for your addiction, it's an affliction for sure. Bringing awareness, it's Derek the Recovering CEO. Hello, uh, this is Derek the Recovering CEO. Welcome to our podcast and video podcast. It's been a while, uh, but we are back today. Today, recording this on Friday, August 12th in the year of our Lord, 2022. And we're here with a very special guest today, as you can see in the, in the uh, video here. His name is Dave Lefave. He is an RSS counselor at Dawn Farm. He's a super nice guy, and I'm just getting to know him. And uh, today, you're going to get to know him, too. So how are you doing today, Dave? I'm doing good in the year of our Lord and the day before your birthday. No, your sobriety birthday. Yes, today is the day before my sobriety birthday, so I can't count it yet, but uh, tomorrow would be 26 years, so pretty exciting. Incredible. Congratulations. Do you, are you one of these guys who, uh, we all honor our belly button birthday, do, what, do you do anything special for sobriety birthday? For my sobriety birthday? Yeah. Um, you know, so I was supposed to be on fish tour right now, so I'm a big fish fan, the band. And actually took my last drink at a show, August 13th, 1996, in Indiana at a fish show. Um, so I was going to be there in, in uh, Wisconsin, but I, I sold the tickets. So I often oh celebrate, celebrated a fish show, which is cool because they have meetings at fish shows called The Fellowship. So it's kind of like yes. AA. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But for tomorrow, I don't know. I'm working, actually, at Sparrow. So. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I, you know, one thing that I, I know we're both Gen X. One of my strongest memories um, of college was having friends who were like sort of nascent fish heads uh, collecting the tapes, the endless cassette tapes of like this show and that show and this show and that show and the differences between each jam session and these 38 minute long songs, you know, bless. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, are you from around around here, Ann Arbor? I am from all of the Great Lakes. I was born and raised in the UP, northeastern Wisconsin, southern Wisconsin, and here. So okay. I consider myself sort of a citizen of the water. That's great. Yeah. yeah. We're lucky to live in the Great Lakes region. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was talking to a friend the other day, and he was, you know, he's a bit of a news, news junkie. And he and a climate freak, and he was saying, you know, if everything falls apart, if everything goes to hell in a handbasket, the best place for anyone to be is right here where we are, because we've got all these marvelous resources and we're protected from so much crazy weather by the shoreline mm -hmm. and by the presence of Lake Michigan, and of course, in Ontario, Huron, and Superior, just sort of like putting us in this nice, neat little box and. I had never really, I'd never sort of looked at it that way, but I feel very lucky and grateful to have chosen to live this incarnation in this particular space. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I totally agree. Um, so Dave, uh, this is a recovery podcast, you know, the recovering CEO, we try and help people who might be struggling with addiction. So tell me a little bit about your story. How did you get into recovery? Uh, how long you've been sober? Just how, how'd you get here, Dave? Yeah. I guess I'll do what we do at the at our open talks. Okay. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm a cross-addicted alcoholic. Drugs are part of my story. My sobriety date is February 10th, 2017. 
I have a sponsor. Who has a sponsor? I do not sponsor people because I am employed by the agency where I got sober. I'm a recovery specialist, meaning that I work individually, normally with men, one-on-one to help them find their path amongst many to abstinence or their choice of recovery management, whatever that might look like. That's great. My life, you know, I, I always want to say, Derek, that my, my gateway drug was childhood trauma because I, what is it called? Stockholm syndrome. I was so relentlessly bullied um, as a child. I'm a gay male. And as a little boy, I was highly effeminate and actually misgendered often enough. Uh, I am not trans. I am a gay male. He, him, his. Um, But it became to, it got to the point where I, it was the normal, it was normal for me to exist in a world where I had to constantly seek escape. Um, You know, going to a public school in a small town up north, um, there weren't very many resources and at the time, you know, this was the 70s and early 80s, not a lot of adult staff members in any school would step forward. You know, mm-hmm. there was no woke space. Um, I had to fend for myself, and I found I found refuge in the usual places, literature, music, film, art, and sugar, you know, food. And uh, of course, sex, um, because at, when you're when you're gay and twelve and knee deep in puberty, all the lights turn on, as it were, you know. And so that became almost transactional in a way. Sex, um, not so much with strangers, but like navigating my relationships with other males got sticky and complicated and it only got worse as I got older. So in college, University of Wisconsin, Madison, I utilized that even more. And of course that in the early nineties was, how do we say it? A party school. Mm -hmm. Still is. And this is still is. Yeah. This is where I discovered, you know, how to, how to properly consume a case of beer before arriving at the party. <laughs> you know, that was the, that was no one blinked an eye. Right. You would smoke a joint. You might drop some acid at some point and, and then time it. So you peak at the party, you know, like it was a whole, there was equations to it, but it was all very innocent. It was mushrooms, LSD, uh, nothing, uh, you know, it, to me, it it wasn't dangerous, and it uh, it had no adverse effects because, if anything, it made my relationships with other men a lot easier. That and it didn't have to be sexual or transactional, and it uh, it made me gregarious, funny, engaging, and uh, alert. You know, which is the same thing that I got uh, from uh, diet pills at the time. It was pure ephedrine, uh, sometimes dexedrine back then. And these were 
not over the counter, but they weren't difficult to get, you know, and all of my friends' mothers had them just laying, you know, I, I, I had no problem digging into a purse when there was no one in the living room. And I certainly had no problem raiding a medicine cabinet, you know. And so then that starts to grow. All of these things I'm juggling while becoming a person. I was working in retail, specifically visual retail, which now is sort of a dead career. I mean, I literally, like, all of my work has been creating window displays for big retailers and some interiors and so on. And, and you know, I, I looked at this as where art intersected commerce. I was very high-minded about it, you know. I was going to write my memoirs one day. I was going to be, uh, you know, celebrity-level window dresser was my dream. <laughs> but, of course, I had to fuel this. And uh, being a decorator by nature, I got a lot of, like, private clients, very wealthy, bored women, wives of dentists, wives of obstetricians, who wanted nothing more than a little gay lap dog to come and pick out pillows with, you know. And these women, all I had to do was complain of a headache, and they gave me Vicodin. So then this opens up, <laughs> and this just grows and grows and grows. Milwaukee, Chicago, and boom, a job in Ann Arbor. So I arrive here in 1994 and discover Detroit and cocaine mm. and crystal meth and all of the things that come. So by now, I've, I've built an incredible uh, sort of CV of drug use that has not been debilitating and has not been unmanageable. I've been very successful. Thank you very much. Until I wasn't. And that was when shit hit the fan. The opioid crisis, which I don't think anyone can give an exact starting date to, uh, visited me, as it did so many, through the, uh, the marvelous sort of filter of uh, maxiofacial surgery. And... and the maxiofacial surgeon, you know, dentistry came along and, oh, there's my old friend Vicodin again. Hydrocodone, oxycodone, roxycodone, oxymorphone, all of the opiates packaged neatly and in, in, in great quantity as well. I mean, one tooth extraction was a bottle of 30. No refills. But I could always go back and say, oh, it still hurts. I'm a good actor. So I would dentist hop Washtenaw County to get more painkillers because they did something to my brain that just made everything so good. And this is a point of contention for me when people say, why did you take drugs or why do people do this? Why do people get addicted? Uh, because they make you feel incredibly good. That's the thing. That, dope, that dopamine sort of opening of the dopamine dike, the, the flood, which is what's happening. Right. And the norepinephrine, you know, and the serotonin and all the things 
it's undeniable. It's it's. It felt like it was a false awakening in a way. Like, oh, I've arrived. You know, I understand everything now, and all I need to get through life, or a dinner party, or a date, or a ride on the bus, or the damn laundry, was a couple of pills. Just one. Oh, one and a half. Oh, mm, I'll just take two. Mm, two and a half. Three. And then up to 10 a day. And pretty soon, I'm, I'm losing things. I'm forgetting things. Uh, my teeth feel loose. Um, I can't concentrate. I'm sallow, pale as a candle, sweating all the time. You know, all of these things are becoming obvious to everyone around us. But the thing about addiction is... And you know, this is the only disease that convinces us it's not there. You know, who mm-hmm. I heard a comedian once say that alcoholism was the only disease you can get yelled at for. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know who said it, but I love that. Uh, but I told I was in complete denial, full denial for, I guess, two decades. Well, until until twenty seventeen, until twenty well fifteen, really when. Um, things totally fell apart because not having any actual maladies or problems, I had to buy everything on the street of Hamtramck, Detroit, Ferndale, Royal Oak. And that was a lot of gas. That was a lot of driving back and forth. It's a lot of cover-ups. It's a lot of lying to bosses. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of lying to loved ones. Where were you yesterday? Oh, I had to run to Detroit for what? You know, and then you got to, you have to create a whole thing. And then I got really good at like compartmentalizing these little movies in my head about where I am and what I'm doing just to mm-hmm. keep everybody off my back so that I could keep my level of sanity with that, every, because everyone else is crazy. That's a lot of juggling. That's, that's amazing. Yes. You're, you're able to keep it going for so long. Really? That's a long time. I suppose. I suppose. I know now after step nine, I know now that I wasn't fooling anyone at all. Everyone knew. Um, And everyone had concerns. And what I know now is that for almost two solid years, machinations and and designs were in play behind my back of we've got to help him. Someone's got to do something. Who do we call? You know, because none of my friends were in recovery. No one knew about detoxing no one knew about medical detox no one knew the dangers of stopping cold turkey from benzos or alcohol and by then i was knee deep in xanax and i was knee deep in clonopin and adderall and any just any orange bottle with a white cap i'm good to go i didn't care what it was and of course the big stimulants like cocaine and crack were still there and intersecting with transactional sex. So I'm cheating on my partner. Oh, this is a total mess. Anyway, it was an actual intervention, much like the TV show. Yeah. Uh, a bunch of people in a hotel room. That's pushed me over the edge. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to do it. I was, I was uh, terrified. And it was a medical detox um, that started my addiction to medical detoxes because once I realized that all I had to do was report to the local hospital 
This was 2015, so they were still doing this. Mm-hmm. All you had to do was report to the local hospital, blow a point five, and they would put you in a bed, and, and then you kick your feet up, turn the TV on, get some Ativan intravenous, and and just order some food and enjoy the day. And it was lovely. It was like a vacation. I did ten of these in a row at U of M and St. Joe's and Chelsea St. Joe's. I would just get hammered, lose my mind, crash a car. The Fiat, the Chevy, and the Buick. And then show up at the hospital and boom, boom, boom. And it wasn't until, and it was, I don't know, can I say this person's name? First name. Corey Talene. Corey Talene. Stood at my bedside at U of M. And said, "Uh, have you had enough? And I had to say yes. I mean, on top of like, Literally hallucinating my ancestors and my dead parents in the room. Maybe it was from the meds. Maybe it was from the detox. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> his little bald head looked like an angel, you know, and it was like I had been 12 steps, of course, not knowing it. But I said, I said, yes, like this, I obviously can't keep going. My partner has left me. He is th- at that time threatening to take the house and the dogs, what will I be left with? You know, it, thank God, I don't know, Derek, I don't know how I was, I've, I've never been in jail and I've never been arrested. I don't know how, I don't know how. I am so grateful because I meet so many guys. That's another talk. Mm-hmm. I was so, I was grateful for the opportunity. He said, okay, we're taking you to a place called Sparrow. I, which I thought I didn't know what that was, and he explained it to me. He was like, "Well, this is the this is the first step towards Dawn Farm," and I had I had heard of Dawn Farm, and I knew the story. I was like, "No way, no way, I'm not doing that." <laughs> I don't know. No, I I there's Dawn Farm. Dawn Farm at the time had a, a, a mythos, a lore mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, of you know confrontational therapy i know is what it's called now absolutely not i'm not doing it but i'll do the sparrow thing i'll do the sparrow thing fine take me there and th- thank god this was arranged for me i arrived there for, i took five days to get off the phenobarbital because you can't go into the farm with anything and then i arrive at the farm and my very i remember derek my very first thought was I'm going to journal this whole experience and I'm going to write the expose that blows the lid off this place. <laughs> this is a cult and they're brainwashing <laughs> people and I'm not, I'm not going to stand for it. Right. You know? It was my first step at social justice. I was going to advocate for my tribe until I was completely crushed and my ego destroyed by hearing my story told back to me by complete strangers, male and female, gay and straight, black and white. While, you know, shoveling pig shit, while feeding the donkeys, while grooming a goat, while running from chickens, Hmm. Uh, you know, like out in the air, in the open, in the wild, in the rain, in the snow, I arrived in the early spring and the heat of the summer. Stacy was my my primary at the time. Mm-hmm. 
And she, I thought she was bananas. She looked like to me like an Egyptian cat <laughs> perched on a little golden throne. I thought these people are nuts. And I'm trying to like, you know, staff split, like who has their MSW and who's just an intern, you know? And, and I was going to like dig in and find out how this thing works so that I could maneuver my way out. Get out. No. It didn't work that way. So, so, so was it actually a good, a good experience at the farm? And did you stay sober uh, that time? Yeah, it was a good experience. And what did it for me was, you know, the farm does something that I don't, I don't think many other agencies do, which is to, uh, you know, they, we take clients to the community, like physically, like put them in a van and drive them to a meeting. And this is before COVID, of course, and arriving one day at primary purpose and looking around at, you know, Jerry Fouché, Malinoff, you know, Mr. B, and these dignitaries, these, these, these people of, of long sobriety, like you, <laughs> and thinking, this can't be real. This, is, this must be some put on here because there's no way that people are sober more than a year. There's no way. I still hadn't figured out that sobriety is a viable way of life. That didn't make sense to me yet. Because, you know, when you're using, when you're drinking, when you've got stuff in your nose, you you honestly believe everyone else does too. You know, like, well, how, how could they not? You know, this is, this is how I'm going to navigate the whole world. Everyone must be doing this. And once you get into the fellowship of the street, and that really is all you know, getting out of it is a shock to the system. So, like I said, hearing my story told back to me, meeting other people that had been doing it successfully for multiple decades, and simply being approached by total strangers and touched, hugged. I had a very out-of-body experience at one point because I remember being in the Presbyterian Church. My father, Gemini also, was very gregarious and a kind of a glad-hander. He would he would walk the church and just like shake his hand out and shake people's hands and talk to people and chit chat. And I always thought he was a terrible bore, but my God, I turned into him because at, in these meetings, you know, at uh, St. Andrews, uh, Zion Lutheran, you know, these big, gorgeous churches, these wonderful spaces, you know, the house of God. Here I am, not only comfortable, but socializing, enjoying myself, realizing I don't have to be fearful of this. I don't have to be fearful of the God thing either. That was, for me, a, a small hump to get over because it's semantics. Uh, but it it was in those churches and it was in those meetings that I had my uh, awakening, which was informed by the awakening I was having for those four months at Stony Creek, being trapped in a house with 30 other complete strangers who became the dearest of mm -hmm. me. So, so, you know. so Dave, this is a great story. And uh, so tell me, like, how, how did you change? Because so you basically became like your dad. I get that. Um, we, we never want to be like our parents, but I do believe we kind of turn into them eventually. Um, but what was it yeah. like getting sober? Because you seem like a really good guy, you know. So when you removed all your notions about everyone being crazy and how you're going to dismantle the system and what that, then what came out of that? Like, how has your spiritual growth been over the past few years? It's been steady and it's been shocking to me 
um, I came the first time I had a, uh, what's called a ride out from the farm. I went to the atheists and agnostics, atheists, agnostics, and free thinkers of Ann Arbor. I thought, oh, I'm an atheist. I'm going to go to the atheist meeting and meet all the smart people. And I did. It was at WCC. So yeah, I've been there. Church. Yeah. It was on a Monday night. It was a weird night, you know. And I met the cream of the crop, you know. And I thought, oh, at last, I don't have to say the word God. And uh, this will be my fellowship, and it's my home group to this day because it's the it's a meeting full of absolute weirdos. I'm telling you, left of center, hard left leaning, which, uh, you know, how can we avoid in the liberal bubble of Ann Arbor? But I was really, really welcomed there, and that was where I realized. Hey, wait a minute. Yes, this is a we program, but it's also an I get to create my own program. I went through this. I read the 12 and 12. I read the book. I even read as, as Bill C. I read Lois Remembers, I, Sermon on the Mount. You know, I went bananas with the literature. I dove right in because I wanted to learn the history. Thank you, Bill White. And I wanted to get a handle on what it's um it's like you can't you can't design a website if you only know how to make a word document mm. you know what i'm saying like i wanted to be knowledgeable so i wanted to know the rules before i broke them i can relate yeah right so yeah yeah so that was my my mo for year one get a shitty little, I went to transitional housing, get a shitty little recovery job. I became a barista and a very good one in that. And just nose to the grindstone, pay rent, pay the cell phone bill, done. Go to meetings, shut my mouth, speak when I can, share what I want. And things just started to open up. The thing that bothered me and why I say it was shocking was that what I thought a higher power was, which I glibly said was nature. Oh, my higher power is, <laughs> I remember saying this out loud, my higher power is I'm a tree hugger, you know? It's bullshit, you know, that's just me trying to be smart, little smarty pants. No, I actually have a higher power. There is, and this is another talk, this is another podcast, I suppose, but I truly believe there is, there is a, uh, there's an energy in the universe I can't. It's, I almost can't put it in words. I I, I long for a near death experience when I can come back and tell you all about it, um, but I don't think it's going to happen. You know, uh, I I just truly trust that there's a balance in the universe, and there's there's a pl we have a plan for our lives. And honestly, I think we plan our own journey. But that's um, again, I'm opening up too many boxes right now. I'm trying to stay on sobriety Th through through. Uh, this is a bit hackneyed, but through esteemable, performing esteemable acts, I grew my own esteem that I didn't have before. I started, I started becoming the person that I was aiming to be and got sort of sidelined from. The person that I wanted to be somewhere around 1991, 92, when I was in school and I wanted it and then I was doing well. Somewhere in there, I, I cracked open a bit, you know, I'm in a brand new, this is in Madison, I'm in a brand new town, I have a whole new set of friends, and I can be anything I want, and no one's going to make fun of me, you know, and so I started to craft the masks, one of many, 
that I would wear. Oh, today I'm this person, today right. I'm that person. And those masks just fell away through really careful self-reflection. And by just shutting my fucking mouth, just listening to people. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. Just, oh, yeah. No, I, could, I could 100% relate because um, that's one of the reasons I got sober was because it didn't feel right. Like, I didn't feel like my life's plan was to be alone in my apartment, you know, with a bunch of drugs and just looking out the window and not accomplishing anything. Like, it just didn't feel right, right? Like, I feel like I had more to do. But in order to do anything, I had to get sober because I couldn't do anything. Like, I got to the point where I just couldn't really function in society too well, you know? So, mm -hmm. it's not... Yeah. That's, that's always, to me, the interesting thing when I meet with guys and I ask them, when, how did you know? When did you know? And none of us can pinpoint it. But there is a moment where we go from being the life of the party to literally taping the edges of the window shut. And none of us can remember. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing. It's like the veil of forgetting when we come into this life. We don't know who we were before, and we don't remember God. We don't remember the afterlife for a reason. If we did, we wouldn't get anything done. So we have to forget these things a little bit, maybe not shut the door on it, but move forward because all we have is the present. All we have is literally right now, you know, and that can be the hardest thing to convince people of that are, that want sobriety because we're also in our head about what we've done and what's about to happen. Just think about right now. Mm -hmm, That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about it. So you've been working in treatment now for a while. You're over five years sober. I imagine you're helping a lot of people out. Like wh what does it feel like? Like uh, what's a day in the life of uh, Dave Lefebvre? <sighs> well, okay. I can I use visual aids? Uh, you can, but some people only listen to this. They won't watch, but some people will watch on YouTube. Oh, okay. okay. I'll say this much. I wear three different hats for Dawn Farm. So I'm a house manager with 10 guys in early recovery. I like to say it's Lord of the Flies meets Facts of Life. And I'm an RSS, Recovery Sports Specialist, which is a service provided by outpatient. And I'm a spare counselor only one day a week, but I still consider spare to be home base. Wearing those three different hats means there's a lot of crossover. There's a lot of dual relationships that go on, and it can be exhausting. Keeping, even though I compartmentalize well, keeping those things separate, like, oh, um, a client is at a meeting that I'm also at. Absolutely, I'm going to be friendly. We're going to shake hands. We might even hug. We might even trade stories for a minute. But we have to be really careful about discussing other clients, gossip in the fellowship, which is faster than the internet and thicker than cheese, you know, um, how we navigate, for example, the residents of my house, I organically become close to, but on paper, they are not my friends. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So it's my work in this sense is I have to be very careful about self-care and I have to be very careful about boundary setting um, because the core of the core of what I do as an RSS is care and communication and modeling and linking, like giving people information they might not otherwise find. People don't know about the Huron Valley area intergroup. 
They don't know about the Alano Club. They don't know that there's there's an Alano Club in Celine. Friends of the Little House in Ipsy. You know, there's so many resources out there that we in active addiction and in our first 30 days are almost blind to because it's overwhelming to think about, you know, oh, where do I even start? So that's my position there is to not babysit, but to guide, hey, here's some opportunities. You could do this. You could do this. You could. And sure, there's a, every now and again, you find a client shows up that needs a driver's license, needs a bus pass. I need a bike. I really want roller skates. One kid came to me and was, was like, uh, he wanted um, uh, eyeglasses, prescription sunglasses. And he couldn't figure out how to make that happen. So there's, a, there's some case management elements to it where, you know, I, I'm the one with the car, you know, like, I'll come get you. Let's go get a coffee. Let's do this thing. Whereas a sponsor might not be willing or able. And a clinical therapist is neither of those. In most cases, you know, and maybe they haven't made enough friends in the fellowship yet. They don't know who to ask. Mm-hmm. So that's where we come in. So a typical day for me is on the computer like this on Zoom, on the phone, and then in the field, in my car, home visits, taking guys to meetings, uh, meeting them for coffee, hanging out, um, introducing them to other guys, because I work with men, other guys in the fellowship, um, and there's a little bit, you know, there's a little bit of sort of like fiddler on the roof, sort of matchmaker vibe, where I can say, oh, I know who you should meet, you know, and you use a little bit of that magic intuition to say, oh, wait a minute, this, you know, and this is why I love Alano Club on Saturday morning, because everyone's there, and I can, I can, I can just like grab someone and be like, talk to him, grab mm-hmm. somebody else, talk to him, and just watch the fireworks explode mm-hmm. and it's amazing so, so is that kind of you know because i know you're a creative guy and you went from designing these magnificent display windows so is that your creative outlet today like how are you expressing your creativity is it in your work that's a really good question um absolutely yes because i think people who you know a visual artists musicians writers anyone that takes a thought and manifests it physically um, is going to do it on any, uh, like, take the paints away from a painter. He's going to, something is going to pop out somewhere. You can't stop it. That is God. That's God coming through us. And in my opinion, uh, in my experience. So at first, in my second year, this, I'm a quick story. The second year of sobriety, far, farm approached me to take over the art therapy position at the farm. I am not a licensed therapist. And an art therapy master's degree is like eight years of work and a shit ton of money. And I'm like, I didn't think I, I said, absolutely not. I'm not doing it. And Anna was like, well, no, listen, we'll just call you the art moderator. And it is a paid position. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll do it. Absolutely. I'll do it. I remember Amber who had done art at the farm and I loved her and I knew her vibe and her rhythm. And I thought, I can totally do this. So I did it. And I did it for like a year and a half before I burned out because it was too much. But that was a marvelous way to like get it out was to be with others in recovery and like just do just weird little arts and craftsy shit for you know two hours a week on a Friday morning. It was a lot of fun, uh, but I'm over it <laughs> because it's a lot of work. And so now, believe it or not, I don't know if you've ever been to Cedar Park 
is the largest estate of transitional houses. It's three buildings, huge space in front of us. It's almost the size hmm. of a public park. And uh, I, my creative side comes out in like, we do little art installations in the trees and the guys are, I get, they help me garden and uh, we, we just do all kinds of weird things that um, I'm sure our transitional housing coordinator might raise an eyebrow at. Uh, but mm -hmm. it's creative output, so I yeah. encourage it. And and so I've <laughs> I've known you since since I met you. I've known you as Davy. Uh, how did you get the name Davy? I mean, obviously Dave, Davy, but where did it come from? The farm, because there's a, a loudspeaker at the farm. As a client, when you receive mail or a phone call or whatever, you know, it comes over the loudspeaker. They say, uh, you know, Dave to the office, and I was there with a guy named David Seaman and Dave Richards and myself, and we all answered to David or Dave. So every time one of us got a piece of mail, all three of us would come running and it got tiring until Julie Boster said, she looked at me and she goes, don't you have a nickname? And I said, well, actually, yes. When I was a child, I used to wear a coonskin cap and they called me Davey. And she's like, fine, hmm. you're Davey. David, Dave, Davey. And I was like, what? And it just stuck. And in sobriety now, what I've discovered is that in public, people who address me as Davey, they already know. They know the change has occurred, you know? And someone that says, yo, Dave, David, it's like, ah, aha, here's someone from before the bridge, you know? It's, it's kind of an interesting mm -hmm. tool. Yeah, it's kind of like when I went back to the Blockbuster in my hometown, back when we had Blockbuster, and I, I saw some people from high school that I hadn't seen in 20 years. It's like a shocking moment, you know? Um, <laughs> remember me? Um, but, uh, yeah. Dang, oh my gosh. Are you friends for, still friends with people from high school? No, not really, no. One or two. Just a couple, yeah. No? Yeah. Just a couple. You know what? I I remember leaving high school in the summer of 88 and saying, I'll never see these people again. Fuck them. And thinking that the people I met in college, that would be, you know, the, the sort of St. Elmo's Fire moment that will be my eventual big chill. These are going to be the people that are with me forever. No, not at all. All of my friends from college have completely dissipated. We're connected on social media, but we're not friends. Everyone from high school are now confidants. They, they have turned out to be the actual friend group that, that I adore. And interestingly enough, a lot of my bullies from that era have come forward. You know, everyone's seen my journey on social media. They've come forward and almost step nine me. And they're not even in recovery. They've come to me and said, you know, I remember, I remember making fun of you. I remember beating you up. I, I hope you can. And it's like, that almost feels like one of the problems. Yeah. You know, like, oh, wow. And, and it's my honor and my gift to genuinely forgive them and let that trauma fall away so that I'm not still dragging it around. Yeah. And letting it That's wonderful. Um, so Davey, uh, we're going to have you on this podcast again, but for today, because we're about out of time, do you have any fi final uh, statements yeah. you want to make to our listeners before we say goodbye today? Oh, I don't know. I think uh, if you have a loved one or a spouse 
or a friend who is abusing a substance and hiding it, and it's clear to you that this is going on, talk to them. No ultimatums. Don't threaten. Talk to them. Pull them aside. Go outside on the porch. Go in the backyard. Drive them to Hardee's. Drive them out to the beach. And just say, hey, I'm a safe person you can talk to. Even if they're high at the moment, they might even be willing to say more. Get them to open up a little bit and let them know that you're a safe person so that when they are ready, they call you. Even if you're not a professional, even if you're not clinical, not licensed, fuck it. You're the one that they're going to turn to and say, oh my gosh, help. Yeah, I I love that. You know, and a good friend of mine, Perry Ingstrom, he said, you know, like the advice he gave to his daughter, and I give this to my daughters too, which is because I have two daughters, which is kind of scary. He said, if you're ever finding yourself doing something you didn't want to do, talk to somebody about it. That's the key is you got to talk to somebody about it. And as you and I know, that's that's a big part of recovery is sharing, right? And, and getting it out, uh, talking to our sponsors, because then we don't have to drink over it. So I think telling on myself is a really good tactic. If I'm doing yeah. something that w- I didn't feel right, then I tell on myself and then maybe that person will help me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's that's how we run this. I'll t- so this is Cedar Park Inn, and we call ourselves the Sharks, the Cedar Park Sharks. It rhymes. But it's also because we hold each other so aggressively accountable and because we are in a tank that is transparent. So there are no secrets. No one gets away with shit. If someone comes home at 11.01, I'm alerted immediately. We talk about it right now. What are you doing? You know, like, this is what we need in the opposite of addiction, which is connection which is accountability, which is being show up, stand up, speak up. 100%. 100%. Davey, you're, you're 100%. wonderful, man. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm just going to, yeah. yeah. And I'm, ple- I'm pleased to work with you. It's, uh, it's, it's been an honor so far. So I look forward to more years of working together. Yeah. Oh, I hope so. Oh, and listen, hey, listen, Molly asked me if I oh, would fun. Part wonderful. Sundays again. Okay. Yes, I, I went ahead and said yes. So we'll see. Because we don't do anything from 2 to 3 on Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we're this. All right. Well, hey. Never mind. So for anyone listening, thank you for listening <laughs> to The Recovering CEO. Be sure to subscribe. Be sure to tell a friend. And uh, if you like this, feel free to write a review. And until next time, we will see you. And uh, thanks, Davey, for your time. Adios. Of course, thank you. Do you eat too much? Do you drink too much? Do you work around the clock? Can't satisfy that itch. Just one more bump and then I'll stop. You can get help for your addiction. It's an affliction for sure. Bringing awareness. It's Derek, the recovering CEO.